Glad to be here with you this morning. Um, Before we begin, as always, I like to uh, start with prayer, so would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for another opportunity to stand here this morning. Please remove any thoughts from my mind of personal recognition or accomplishment and replace my will with your will. Replace my thoughts with your thoughts and make my words yours. I pray these things in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, good morning again. Um, I want to thank Brother Kerry for uh, allowing me to be up here again. And before we get started, I have to tell you, if you were here last time I got to, to uh, preach, um, I have checked this podium and there are no wheels on it. <laughs> so I think we're safe. Um, if you weren't here, uh, Brother Kerry let me preach one night when he was going to be gone and I decided I was u- going to use the portable podium. So uh, before the service started, I wheeled it out across the tile in the back and no problems. Wheeled it over against the wall. No problems. And then uh, Mr. Wesley, as he got done with the singing, stood up and I pulled the podium over to where I was going to stand and one of the wheels falls off. <laughs> and everything I was going to say just went poof, I was gone. But, uh, no wheels on the podium this morning. Um, but this morning I want to talk to you about a subject that should be near and dear to every Christian's heart. And it's also a subject that I wish every person on earth knew. It's God's unimaginable love. Um, we'll be looking at Romans 5, 1 through 11. And within those verses is my, fi- my favorite Bible verse, Romans 5, 8. Um, but, God, it's, it's, uh, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were si- still sinners, Christ died for us. For me, sometimes calling Romans 5, 8 my favorite verse feels a little strange. Because when I read that verse, it's just so humbling and a reminder of the huge price that God paid for my sin, your sin, our sin, and that awful sacrifice Jesus made for all of us. The cost is hard to think about, but there's also a reminder of the unimaginable gift of love God made for us. When we read about love in the Bible, there are usually two forms of love discussed, and in the Greek It's philia and agape. Philia is the human form of love. It's usually dependent on a response from someone else, and it's conditional. Humans usually love each other based on how the other person interacts with us. We love based on how we feel, and and we love based on if it's beneficial for us. As good as it it can feel, philia love is selfish and dependent on how we feel. Agape love is used to express the unconditional love God has for his children. God's love is unconditional because there is no condition in which we deserve it. There is no price we can pay. There's nothing we can do to earn it. So I want us to look at Romans 5, 8 with those two types of love in mind and the verses that come before and after it to hopefully gain a better understanding of this unimaginable love God has for us. I broke this message down in four points, and they are, first, justified by faith in Jesus. We have peace with, or I'm sorry, um, God provided the terms of peace. I forgot to change my notes, sorry. Um, And the second one is, Jesus provided the access. The third is, God proved his love once and for all. And and fourth, Christ reconciled our sin and intercedes for us. So um, let's start with reading the scripture first, and uh, we'll break it down later. 
Uh, Romans 5, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled with, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Before we jump into those verses, I think it's important to note that Romans 5.1 starts with therefore. And you've probably heard this many times. I think Brother Kerry even mentioned this a couple of times, or a few weeks back in one of his sermons. But whenever we see the word therefore, we need to go back in the Bible and look what it's there for. So we're, we're in chapter 5 of Romans where Paul is writing to the Roman church. Paul has already explained in the first four chapters of Romans about the original unavoidable problem of sin. Before Jesus, we were hopelessly separated from God by sin. The Jews were given special knowledge of God and were given the law. And the Gentiles, or us, or non-Jews, while we did not formally know God the way the Jews did, we had knowledge of God through his creation and our conscience. God created us all and desires a relationship with his creation. But God didn't make us robots. A robot or a machine cannot love you. It can only do exactly what you tell it to do. God loves us and wants us to love him in return. But true love must be truly but true love must be freely chosen. So God gave us free will. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you, you eat from it, you will certainly die. So in the garden where everything was perfect, Adam and Eve could eat from any tree they wanted, except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In human terms, this is how I relate to and understand the idea of God giving us free will, but we still need rules to live by. Years ago, I remember learning about different forms of government and how they allow certain degrees of freedom. A government that allows total freedom 
is, is no government at all, but total anarchy. And we know anarchy would be impossible to live in peacefully. And the inverse of that is a government that allows no freedom, which is complete, completely tyrannical. And no one wants to live under that form of government either. So in human terms, we must have some degree of rules or a standard to live by. I believe it's the same idea with God, how God gave us a very simple rule to live by at first when God gave one rule to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. You can have anything in this perfect garden except this. I was watching uh, some Instagram, Instagram reels the other day. Um, and Missy always laughs at me when I watch these, but she watches them too. So, um, But I don't know if you've seen this trend out on social media or not, but uh, someone always plays a joke on someone, records it on social media, like Instagram or TikTok, and then everyone and their brother is recording themselves playing the same joke on their friends and family. The latest one seems to be luring someone close to you while you pretend to be making something with eggs. And when you need to crack the egg open, you smack the person with the egg on, on their head. It's pretty stupid after a while. But there was, there was one trend going around that I happened to see. Um, and it's uh, with parents. They, they sit their kid, usually a toddler, at a table. They put a camera in front of them and a pile of candy. And they tell them they, tell them they can't eat the candy until they come back. And they leave the camera there and the candy recording them. So some poor kid is sitting there with a pile of Skittles or M&Ms in front of him, and they're dying to grab them, and they usually do. Like I said, it's pretty stupid, but that little video kind of reminds me of our desire to sin. We have the freedom to do it, and the only thing stopping us is the control of our own desires. And like those kids, we can, we can hold out for a while, but we always seem to want what, we can't, what we're not supposed to have. And unlike some harmless candy, sin is not good for us. And God, while he gives us free will, tells us what we're not to do, but we can't help ourselves, and we do it anyway. But this whole sin problem started with Satan. He thought he was equal to God, and he tempted Adam and Eve with the same sin. When he told them, if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil... He said, You'll sh- you shall be like God. Satan always masquerades sin, and it doesn't matter what the sin is. Theft, murder, envy, lust of the flesh, lust of money, lust for power. It all boils down to the original sin Satan committed, and he tried to convince Adam and Eve of, you shall be like God. So I said all that to go back to the original reason why we looked at why therefore was in Romans 5.1. If you go back and read Romans chapters 1 through 4, Paul has just gone through the entire history of how God made himself known to the Jews and Gentiles. Paul is writing to the Romans who are a mix of Jews and Gentiles. So he's trying to relate how the Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat as far as sin goes. And I want to just briefly go through what I believe the first four chapters say. In in chapter 1, Paul reveals how God made himself known to the Gentiles. In Romans 1, 18 through 20, it says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his internal, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So he's saying that even though the Gentiles did not have the revelation of God from the prophets or the law like the Jews did, that God is clearly evident in creation. And in chapter 2, Paul says, All people are under the doom of breaking the righteous law of God. In Romans 2, or chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, it says, For all people, for all who sin without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. So Paul says that, keep, that keeping the law or those that keep the law will be judged by the law and those without the law will be judged by their own consciences. And then in chapter 3, we see one of the most commonly used verses to describe the sin condition of all mankind. Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 4, Paul says, There is no amount of works or good deeds that merits eternal life. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world has not come through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So whether Jew or Gentile, we are all born sinners and eternally separated from God. This has been the case since Adam and Eve first sinned. God continually reveals that sin has separated his chosen people from himself. Or, I'm sorry. God continually re- reveals that sin that has separated his chosen people from himself. And the only thing that can save them is a heart of repentance and reliance on or faith in God. I apologize, but um, I'm reminded of another verse right now that uh, Paul said he prayed for a relief of a thorn in the flesh. And I've got a, this wire is sticking me in the ear. So you see me uh, reaching for my ear, that's what's going on. Um, but Paul writes in Romans 4, through 25 about Abraham. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul says that Abraham's faith was, faith was credited to him as righteousness, and this will also be credited to those who believe in God and Jesus, who God raised from the dead. Jesus was delivered as our sacrifice, as a sacrifice for our sins. 
and raised for our justification before God. And when he says, therefore, in 5.1, he's saying, even though we have this sin problem, only because of what Jesus did on the cross are we justified. <clears throat> only because of what Jesus did on the cross are we justified righteous before God. So uh, let's jump into the points I have for the message. Point number one. God provided the terms of peace. In Romans 5.1 when it says... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul is saying, after, that, after the knowledge that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, our faith is what saves us and justifies us before God. There is no action we can take. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves but our faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The other part of that verse is... <clears throat> that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To be at peace with God is a feeling hard to describe. Because the inverse of that is to be at war with God. And this war with God was over before it began. When we think about what war, what a, excuse me, when we think about a war and what happens when one side is the victor, a merciless victor will annihilate their foe. But a merciful victor will set the terms of how they can, there can be peace. And to be at war with God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent ruler of the universe is not a place you want to be. But because, because God, or because he is a God of mercy... He's offered a way to have peace. To have peace with God is everything. Peace with God brings peace with everything else around you. It is truly indescribable how being at peace with Him brings peace in your life and everything going on around you. The world could be falling into complete chaos around you, like right now, and being at peace with God It doesn't matter what else happens. And also, on a side note, I think this is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous and false. God never promised us we'd have peace on earth. We'd be rich, we'd have perfect health, or have perfect relationships with one another if we follow Jesus. What he has promised is an eternal place with him and peace. And that is more valuable. That is more valuable than anything we could ever experience here on earth. I hope that if you are not with peace with God, you will make it right before you leave here today or as soon as possible. Point number two, uh, Jesus provided the access. In verse 5-2, it says, We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which, in which we stand. Because Jesus justified us before God, 
He has also provided access to God through faith in him and into his gift of grace. And then it says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Um, some, some Christian denominations believe that salvation is based, is based both in faith and in works. But since grace by faith is our only hope, we can only boast or brag about Jesus and what he did and the grace that God provides. There is nothing we can do to obtain this justification and grace. To even suggest that there is something we do belittles, belittles Jesus' sacrifice. And then in Romans 5.3 it says, And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. So not only do we have this gift of grace, but we boast in what Jesus did and the grace of God. But because there is nothing else we can do, we can actually brag about our inadequacies, which further promotes God's love and Jesus' work. God is so good and so great, and Jesus loved us so much and was so obedient that there is nothing else we can do or need to do. God's grace and Jesus' love is something to brag about. And continually bragging about God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice produces endurance in our faith. And endurance produces character. And then Romans 5, 4 through 5, it says, Endurance produces proven character, and proving character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Endurance produce, builds character and character produces hope. Our hope is not a blind hope, but it's an anticipation of what, to, what is to come. As the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and lives and reveals God's truth and will in our lives. When we are at peace with God, when we are in tune and listening to the Holy Spirit, hope is revealed and continually renewed and strengthened in us. And then point three is God proved his love once and for all. In Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the difference between the philia love I was talking about earlier and agape love. For while we were still helpless, Christ loved us and died for us. Before any action we took, could have taken or could have taken to prove our love Jesus obeyed the father and in fact he went to the cross while everyone opposed him in Luke chapter 23 verse 33 through 34 it says when they arrived at the place called the skull they crucified him there along with the criminals one on the le- one on the right and one on the left Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes. They nailed him to a cross, along with two criminals, the Son of God, and everyone, while everyone was against him. 
His only friends, the disciples, had abandoned him. The crowd was taunting him, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And because, and I believe, and I believe this, and because Jesus died for all sin, for all time, we nailed him to that cross. We taunted him, and we abandoned him. There is no greater sacrifice than this. There is no work we can do that will ever compare to it. Even if you added all the good works we could do, possibly all do together, there is nothing that will compare to the Son of God willingly laying down His life for us. There is something else in Romans 5, 6, 2. And notice it said, at the right time. I was listening to a, a debate a few weeks ago between a Christian and an atheist. And the atheist had the audacity to complain that if God was so perfect, why did he wait so long to send his son? And the Christian apologist's response was perfect. And I did not realize this, but it makes sense. But he said that it is estimated to date that 117 billion human beings have lived on earth that we know about. And less than 2% of that number had lived on earth up until Jesus' time. That means that since Jesus came, died, was buried, and resurrected, 98% of all people, and that's roughly 114 billion people, have lived on earth. And that that percentage will continue to to increase after God sent his son. God's timing is perfect. And with Rome's, with Rome's influence in the world, it was the perfect time to send Jesus. You can rest assured that God is never late. He is always right on time. For, and then in Romans 5, 7, it says, for rarely, someone, for rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. For me as an American, I can think of no uh, better example of someone dying for a just person or a good person than our military. So many, paid, so many paid the ultimate sacrifice, and we like to say it's for our country, and I know that's a huge part of it. But, you know, um, every time I've ever heard an interview of a veteran that came back from war, they always say they went to war for their country, but when it came down to dying, it was for someone Dying for someone, it was the guy next to them. It was never, when you're in the middle of a war, it's about the guy next to you. Um, as high as, and as high as that sacrifice is, there's been an even higher sacrifice made. And we get to Romans 5, 8. And it says, But God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think it's important to point out here that there are two sacrifices here. The first one, God had to send his son. And the second one is Jesus had to obey God the Father. 
Let me tell you something. I love every person in this church, but there's not one person in this building I would willingly send one of my children. Send one of my children to die for and experience what Jesus experienced. Going back to the analogy about men dying in war, many parents have watched their children go to war, but every one of them prays for their child to return home safely. God, on the other hand, sent Jesus into the world knowing full well what would happen to him. Can you imagine that? That gets back to us not understanding what it, what it truly means, the agape love. Many times in history, men and even lately women have gone to war because our backs are against the wall. In a just war, we fight when we've been pushed to the brink of destruction. But you know, God has never been pushed to the brink of anything. God's back has never been against the wall. He had no obligation to send his son to die. And Jesus had no obligation to go to the cross. We sacrifice in our weakness, but God sacrificed in perfect strength and might. And that's why that verse is so special. God sent his son when he had no obligation to do so. And Jesus obeyed his father when the entire world was against him. Does that mean anything to us anymore? Last point. As Christ reconciled our sin and intercedes for us. In verse nine, verses 9 through 11, Paul says, How much more, how much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. You know, it's just hard for me to get past the fact that while we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die and pay our debt. It's why that agape type of love is so hard for us to understand and practice. As much as I've messed up and continue messing up, how did God think I was worthy? Maybe you feel the same way. But I think Satan wants to get in our heads and tell us we're not worthy. And the price was too high for us. But I I have to tell you that is simply not true. And believing that, we're basically telling God he didn't know what he was doing. God's love is perfect. God's timing is perfect. And he loves us. And nothing we can do will change that. We need to begin living our lives like we actually believe the creator of the universe sent his son to die for our sins. And Jesus is alive and intercedes for us. We need to live our lives accepting this gift from God. And when we receive a gift from someone, or, you know, in human terms, when we receive a gift from someone, it's considered rude not to accept it. So how much more rude is it to not accept the most priceless gift ever given? Have you trusted in God's unimaginable love? 
Or have you slipped into a trap of sin and need to repent? Do you consider yourself unworthy of this gift? Let me tell you, God does not accept this gift today. And as we close this service, while we sing a hymn of invitation, I beg you, do not leave here today without accepting Jesus Christ and becoming justified to God. Accept God's peace and his love for you. Maybe you need to come to the altar and lay something down to God and receive his peace about it. Whatever it is, don't leave here today without God's peace. And if you're unsure about it and want to talk with someone, get in touch with Kerry. I know he would love to discuss it with you. Or if you want to talk to me about it, I would love to as well. But for now, let us pray.